0: Ooh. joining us online. Uh, Just now, I don't know why I clap so loud. Those of you joining us online, welcome. We're glad that you're here. And uh, it's good to be together this morning. Uh, Those of you in the room as well. Um, Hebrews chapter one, verse three begins like this. This is speaking of Jesus. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now, We're going to still be in the Gospel of John for our main text. So I see some of you like flipping, wait a minute, Hebrews? No. So we're going to be in John, but why would I read from the book of Hebrews? Well, it's because what we're going to see from John once again today is kind of the the reality of the nature of God that's expressed in the life of Jesus. See, this is a central part of what it means to be a Christian. We mentioned this last week, but what we believe about who God is, uh, is that he is three in one. He is uh, one person, or or one one God in three persons. I almost made it. I almost said heresy there. One God, three persons, okay? Um, And pretty much any metaphor that I try to give you will lead us to heresy, right? Like some people say, well, it's like water. He's steam, and he's water, and he's ice, but that's really not it. And Some people say it's like an egg, and some people love St. Patrick and the three-leaf clover, and Uh, None of those descriptions really get at what the Trinity is. And actually this last week, I heard another pastor use the metaphor of a chord in music, which I thought was really uh, a good way to describe it. If you take like a a major chord, you're going to have a root, a fifth, and a third. And those three notes together will give you the chord. And yet at the same time, those are three separate notes. And so we get the unity, we get the uh, the individual uh, nature of each one of them, and that, that might be a helpful metaphor, but even that is still like a mystery, right? Like the best musicians in the world probably can't perfectly explain to you like how chords actually, they just we just know they work, but it's hard to explain, and, and that's the reality of the Trinity. And last week actually was a Sunday where many of our brothers and sisters across the globe celebrate that because it was Trinity Sunday. Uh, and so um, that is a central doctrine of what it means to be a Christian. So when we read a text where Jesus expression, expresses emotions like he does today, it can be really easy to forget that this is God himself saying this, Right? This isn't like a man who's kind of like God. No, this is God himself somehow in the mystery of the Trinity, in the hypostatic union that is Jesus fully God and fully man. Somehow in that, this is God expressing himself, just like we read in the book of Hebrews a minute ago. Jesus is the exact Imprint. He is the image of the invisible God. Another text would say, He is God, and yet He's not the Father. He's not the Spirit. The Spirit is not Jesus, and the Father is not the Spirit. But they're all three in one. And so, what I, wanna, I want to, what I want you to see is kind of an overarching theme today in this is that Jesus, in His expressions of emotions that we're about to hear, is showing you what God is like. Right? He is showing you that God emotes. God feels. And so this morning, I'm going to ask Devin to come up, and she's going to read the text for us out of John 12 that we're in, and then we're going to dive in.
1: Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour no it was this very reason i came to this hour father glorify your name then a voice from heaven i have glorified it i have glorified it again the crowd that was there and heard it said it was thunder others said it was an angel had spoken to him jesus said this voice was for your benefit not mine now is the time for judgment on this world now, the prince of this world will be driven out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all the people to myself. He said, this shows the kind of death he was going to die. The crowd spoke, we have heard from the law that, Messiah, the, that the Messiah will remain, so how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? Then Jesus told him, you're going to have the light just a little little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them.
0: I'm gonna go ahead and move this because for sure I will hit this with my hand. <clears throat> so John 12, verses 27 to 36. 27 to 36 is where uh, we are this morning, where Devin just read from. So, so remember where we are in John's gospel, right? We we just saw from last week's text that Jesus is this like different kind of king who Uh, is bringing a different kind of kingdom into the world our king jesus he rules from the cross and and not from uh, a throne and and as christians as little christs that's what we're supposed to be as well this is we said the key to a truly royal life uh, that we follow jesus on the road to calvary but today we're going to take into account sort of the effects that the words of jesus in this text have not only on himself um, but on the, the, the world in, in kind of the cosmic sense, and then finally on those who are hearing him and, and, and us as well. And so uh, the last part of verse 36 is, is really significant. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. So remember that this is uh, one of Jesus, or likely Jesus' last public discourse uh, before his crucifixion and he spoke here of the effects of the cross okay and so there's an urgency in what he said these are sort of his uh, last words and he wants to capture the hearts and the minds of the people who are listening to him and he wants to capture our hearts and minds this morning Uh, if you don't know this name uh, don't worry about it but there's a a man named Richard Baxter who's a Puritan uh, and he said this He is the best Christian who has the clearest knowledge of God in his attributes. Now, you may know the A.W. Tozer quote, since we're in the Alliance, and he was an Alliance pastor, where Tozer said, the most important thing about you is what comes into your mind when you think about God. Very similar idea. The more we see of Jesus and what he is like, the more we know God, and the more we know God, the smaller in perspective our problems become. Uh, In Psalm 42, King David famously said, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? And then he ends by saying, Hope in God. So considering, thinking on, and I would even add feeling on, who God is. In kind of the theology world, so often we talk about orthodoxy, right, uh, ideas or right thinking, orthopraxy, uh, right practice, but there's another third one that has kind of, uh, some friends of mine have been talking about lately, and I think they're right in saying orthopathos is also right, feeling the right things as we seek God, and what we'll see here that Jesus feels, and so when we consider who God is in his nature, it makes a huge difference in our own lives, this is exactly what we mean in the church. is what I mean if I ever talk about the spiritual discipline of contemplation, or maybe even meditation, that that part of our spiritual life with God, part of it is to simply quiet our souls and ponder who he is. And and I'll admit, last summer, when, when COVID was really spiking, I got really good at that. I got good at praying because I didn't, I mean, the world felt like it was just spinning around, right? Uh, And I notice in myself that I'm kind of like slipping out of that a little bit, and I've got to recenter my life. And so uh, let's take a look at who God is as we see it expressed in Jesus and as we see the effects of Jesus' own words on himself. Now now think about this. Have you ever said something that you had thought for a long time, but when you spoke it, it like became real in that moment? You ever done that? Like you hear yourself say something out loud, and you're like, man, that just... The fact that I said it out loud makes it just that much more real. I've for sure done that. Uh, and, and hearing the words out in the open, it does something different with them than when they just live in your head. I think that's kind of what's happening here in this text. Let, let's start again in verse 27. This is Jesus speaking. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. So we, we see Jesus here in dialogue with God the Father. Now I wish when I prayed that a voice from heaven would just like tell me what I needed to hear right then. Doesn't always work, amen, right? Or even just a text message or an email, I would, I would be good with that. But a voice from heaven would be pretty cool. So what, what's going on here? Jesus is exposing his own heart. He's, he's being vulnerable. And sometimes uh, Jesus does this. He's, he's telling his listeners, what, what did he say? My soul is troubled, right? The Living Bible uh, renders these words, now my soul is deeply troubled. A, a version called the New English Bible says, now my soul is in turmoil. The, the language here connotes a, a continued sense of turmoil. My soul is in a constant turmoil here is what Jesus is getting at. So he's verbalizing, like, think about what he's, he knows is coming. He's verbalizing the coming dread, and he's overwhelmed with the emotions. And, and he's, he's kind of thrown into this painful anguish. I think we relate, I, I relate to this. So, sometimes you, you sort of, as we said, verbalize something that's kind of been in the back of your mind. And, and when that happens, it's like you get this physiological reaction, and, and this is what's going on with Jesus, because remember, he is fully human. He's not God in a man suit. He is fully a man. And so uh, to find a, a similar response in Jesus as those we've experienced it is comforting, but also somewhat startling, because you remember, he's also God. Right? He, he's the one who holds the world together. He healed lepers. He just recently, in our studies, has raised someone from the dead. So what's going on, Jesus? Why are you afraid? Why are you troubled? Now, some people would point to, yes, he's contemplating the horror of Roman crucifixion. right? Uh, the details that we, even in our most R-rated version of a movie of it, can't really even show the reality of it. I mean, the stuff that we don't even think about or talk about, the, the, the flies that would have gotten all over your face and in your eyes and the nails in your hands, your back being just splayed open against a wooden cross, pulling yourself up to breathe, feeling your lungs fill up with liquid. All of that Jesus knows is coming. And, and, and sure, he's probably not excited about it. We know he's not excited about it because he prays that way. But but if we just think that's what he's only thinking about, I think we miss a huge piece of this, right? Because we know that, that other people have died in very horrific ways. Other people have experienced this kind of physical pain. But what does Jesus say? He says, my soul is troubled. My soul is in anguish. Because he knows that soon he is going to bear the sins of the world. Your sin, my sin, the sins we haven't even committed yet, that somehow in his cosmic glory, Jesus bears all of those. He suffers the punishment for those, which is separation from his Father. And this is what throws his soul into turmoil. The soul of the God who holds the universe together is in turmoil because he would bear our sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, He made him to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus' soul, which had never been tainted with sin, is going to have, not very long from this text, the entirety of the sin of the universe poured out onto it. He's about to endure the wrath of God as he pays for our sins. This is the reality of the atonement being shown here. Jesus knows he's going to bear the wrath for us. Galatians 3 says it this way, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So literally, Jesus is cursed so that you don't have to bear the curse of your sin. Jesus, God, the creator of all that is seen and unseen, as the creed would say, is is a curse. This is incredible. This is a mystery. This is beautiful. His his death, though, how can it be sufficient for the sins of everybody? How how can the death of one man bear the sins of all? Well, it's sufficient because as an infinite being in a moment in time, he can pay an infinite price for sin. And so this is why Jesus is in Christ turmoil in fact in the garden of gethsemane if you know this text from the gospel of mark in chapter 14 jesus says my soul is very sorrowful even to death and then it continues going a little further he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible that this hour might pass from him he is pleading with god the father you ever been there god please don't let this happen unless you think that if God doesn't come through in the way that you want him to come through, means he's not God, don't forget that the son of God, God himself somehow prayed that this hour might pass from him and yet it didn't pass from him. And so the language in those texts means that Jesus is repeatedly kind of throwing himself on the ground and and asking God to deliver him from the cross. Luke 22 says, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, more earnestly because of his agony and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And so Jesus, as much as he is not looking forward to the horrors of the cross and the physical pain that it's going to bring, has all of that horror intensified by the thought of being separated from God, his father. Right? They, they were both present. All three of the Trinity were present when the universe is created. They enjoy this intimacy that our minds can't even fathom. In the, in the garden before his death, Jesus would pray, Abba Father. Like it still weirds me out, but this is the equivalent of us saying daddy. Or, or dad when we're a kid. Right? On the cross, though, he cries, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So now my soul is troubled gives us a look into the very heart of God and because of the nature of who God is in the Trinity this gives us a a look into the very heart of God himself. Jesus is God, right? So when you think of God the Father and and God the Holy Spirit and Jesus I hope you know that all three of them because they're three in one feel this. They all can feel an emote and so If we see this and we understand this about the nature of God, there's no way for us to stay the same because we have this example. So what does Jesus do when he's faced with this turmoil? Well, this is what he says. Now my soul is troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? This is a rhetorical question. The answer is no. He says, for this purpose I have come to this hour. Jesus knows why he's been... Brought, he's, been, uh, he's come to the earth. We might say he knows his calling. He knows his office. He, he knew that he is the lamb slain from eternity. The, the cross is his destiny. That is what he was here to do. To go to the cross and conquer sin and death forever. But in order to get to the resurrection and the ascension, we have to go through the cross. This is his calling. He must go to calvary that is why jesus in the following phrase says father glorify your name and so i wonder as we look at this text and we look at this story of jesus how often when we are faced with a very difficult situation that we know that god has called us into how often we think of our lord and say it's for this hour god that you've brought me to this I I know who I am in you. I know what you've called me to. And so, Father, if there's another way, please, but I'm going to go through with this. If you look just a little bit further back in John 12, 23, we understand what Jesus is praying when he says, Father, I'm in turmoil, and I do not want to endure the agonies of being the sin bearer, but, but give me the cross, is what he's saying. So why does he submit? Why does he submit? First and foremost, it has to be For the glory of God. He says, glorify your name. But, and we can't lose sight of this. We just sang about this. He also endured the cross because he loves you. He endured the cross because he loves you. And now I'm not doing the thing where I always tell you, you is a collective you. No, God In Jesus, loved you individually with all your faults, all your flaws. He knew everything about you before he purchased you with his own blood and he doesn't regret it at all. He loved you. He loves you. This is why Isaiah calls him our wonderful counselor and mighty God, right? But the price of our peace is soul trouble for Jesus. As we just sang, what a friend we have in Jesus. Richard Baxter, when he said he is the best Christian who has the clearest knowledge of God, is right. But when your soul is cast down, as David would say, think of the personal pain that Jesus endured for your salvation, your peace, Your place at the table, your spot at the communion meal that we're going to celebrate later was paid for by the love and the blood of Jesus to the glory of God the Father to bring you to himself. And he continues to lavish that same self-sacrificing love on each one of us as we live in him. And so if we're going through difficult times, whatever that is, and all of us have been through a difficult time, but some of us are going through difficult times right now, wondering where's God at? What is he up to? How come this isn't going how I wanted it to go? We might not have the answers, but we have Jesus. And we can look to Jesus, and we can see Jesus' soul as here portrayed as troubled, and know that he is not unfamiliar with our weaknesses but he was tempted in every way as we are and yet without sin Jesus knows what it's like to be betrayed he knows what it's like to be disappointed he knows what it's like to ask God to to change something that has to happen and God doesn't change it he knows and so we can look to him and as Jesus said in the upper room a little bit later in John let not your hearts be troubled believe in God and believe also in me Right? Jesus is honest with us in the Gospels. He says, in this world, you will have trouble. If anybody tells you, come to Jesus, and you won't have trouble, I don't know what Bible they're reading. Come to Jesus, and in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. He has overcome the world. And so after Jesus reveals what's in his heart, God doesn't remain quiet, right? We see verse 28. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, God's name. I have glorified God's name and I will glorify it again. And so the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it thundered. Now this is willful unbelief if I've ever heard it. A voice came from heaven and people said, oh, it's probably a thunderstorm. Right? Others said an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answers, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. What's Jesus saying? I I already... I already knew who I was. I know what I'm here to do. This voice came for your sake, not for mine. Remember John's purpose in writing this book, that you might believe. Jesus is kind of saying the same thing. And so after the crowd's response, Jesus then turns from the effects of the cross on himself to the effects of on kind of the world in a cosmic sense. Verses 31 to 33, we see several effects. There's two negatives and a positive. The first effect is found in the beginning of verse 31, when Jesus says, now is the judgment of the world. So, so when, when we as humanity exercised judgment on Jesus on the cross, we actually judged ourselves. When, when humanity exercised judgment on Jesus on the cross, It judged itself and showed itself to be flawed. And then the second effect involves our enemy, Satan. The ruler of this world will be cast out, the end of verse 31. And so the cross administers that final blow that ultimately stills the movements of Satan. So uh, the example that I like to use is that uh, when the troops landed on Normandy that day, the war was over. That was it. But the the battle still was raging on. And in the same way, when the cross and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus happens, the war is over. God has won. And now the battle rages on. And so then there's a, a positive effect that Jesus talks about in verses 32 and 33. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die now i know there's a lot of debate about do we choose god or does god draw us to himself and what i would say to you is yes okay it's a mystery i'm not quite sure how it works if you catch me on on the right day i'm going to tell you no we make a choice and if you catch me on another day maybe i had some good pizza i'm going to tell you no i think god chooses us and i and i think that's not the point the point is come to jesus In John 3.14, just before that verse that we all know, what was in the mind of Jesus here... And John 12 is shown to us. John 3, 14 says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So, Numbers 21, back in your Old Testament, tells us about the Israelites being bitten by poisonous snakes in the wilderness, and it causes this terrible fever. And so God, uh, Moses intercedes for his people. God tells him, Make a brass serpent lifted up on a pole outside the camp, and those who had enough faith to look at it would be saved. And so Jesus is saying, that was a shadow. That was something pointing to me. If I'm lifted up on the cross like that serpent as a sin bearer, then those who look to me will be saved. And I will draw people to myself to believe in me. So what draws people to Jesus is him being lifted up as our atonement as the only way that you can get to God. He is the one who took your (coughs) sins upon himself. That's what will draw people to Jesus. Not our witty words, not our great programming, not our cool worship and good music, although those things are nice. What draws people to eternal life in Jesus is holding him up so that people might believe in him. Jesus says, And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Philippians 2 says that every knee will bow. So Jesus isn't necessarily saying that the whole world is going to be saved. We know this from experience, right? Not everybody turns and looks and trusts in Jesus. But that all who are going to be saved are going to be saved by looking on and relying upon and putting their faith in and turning from their sin and trusting in Jesus. So this is the call to all of us. And I don't care if you've heard this a million times or this is the first time you've heard it. We all need to hear it. The invitation, the call to you is to see the troubled soul of Jesus as he becomes a curse for you, that he suffered separation from God the Father so that he would glorify his name and because he loved you and he bore the penalty of your sins and he is inviting you to believe in him. And he's he's doing it in a way that is giving you some urgency. The day is running out. This is the explicitly stated reason why John wrote this down. So that you might believe. But maybe you have some reason that you can't believe, right? Maybe there's some idea that you're hanging on to that's going to be disrupted or demolished if you trust in Jesus right? Trusting in Jesus creates some cognitive dissonance for you. Welcome to the club. In In the final effect of what we see, if that's you, then I want you to relate here to the crowd. The crowd answered him. They answered Jesus. We have heard from the law that the Christ, that's his title, right? It's not Jesus' last name. That's his title. The Christ, the Messiah remains forever. So how can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? So according to their theology, the Messiah can't die. I don't know how they got to this. The only thing I can figure is bad religious leaders. But somehow, they're, they're missing the point of places like Isaiah 53, Zechariah 13, Psalm 22. Maybe you could make a case that this is the mystery that they didn't yet know about because the cross hadn't happened yet, so technically we're still here in the Old Covenant, and they didn't understand what was going on, so they question the words of Jesus. This is a moment of confusion and indifference. I think the response of Jesus, on the surface it might seem kind of harsh, but it's actually loving. Listen to what Jesus says. Now think about it. They're questioning him after he makes this great proclamation. They're like, "Yeah, but that's not true. How is it?" And Jesus says to them, "The light among you for the light is among you for only a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you." The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Now, I know the kids in the back are doing a craft about Jesus, the light of the world. And and I think this is what Jesus is getting at here. He's saying, I'm the light. He's saying to them and to those of us who maybe choose willful ignorance, I don't want to believe. He's lovingly telling us that he's not going to play our games with us. The evidence is there, Jesus is kind of saying i 've given you the news right to use a little bit of street lingo, I said what I said right yeah. I said what I said. the evidence is there, and here I, I, this is the reality of the universe. Jesus is Lord. you can believe it, and I hope you will or you don 't have to believe it, but the reality remains the same. Jesus is Lord. he has no need. To defend himself to anyone's doubts. The invitation is just to come. He has made the ultimate proclamation of love towards us. And he is simply offering himself to us. But to be clear, Jesus isn't going to beg you to come. He's a king. He's a loving king who will sacrifice his life for you and lay himself down and bleed out in the most publicly humiliating way possible to cover your sins. But he's not going to beg you to come along. He's going to invite you. He'll lay his life down for you, but he will not beg. And so Jesus was saying, You've heard my message. Light or darkness, you get to choose. And so the question for us is which will we choose? Obviously, my hope for you is that you'll choose the light and begin walking with Jesus and do that while you still can because the darkness is coming. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time to be reminded of the beauty of your church. Something as simple as 45 seconds of exchanging hellos and a few hugs and handshakes. What a need we've had for the last year or so for that. We thank you for that expression. We thank you that we've been able to sing together freely in this place. We thank you that um, we are, for the most part, back to being able to gather together. And I just pray for those of us who are, um, who who still have family members who are dealing with the effects of COVID and who are still concerned. Father, make us a loving community where um, those concerns can be brought up and we can feel welcome to be a part and where Uh, judgment is just banished from our midst because we are under the banner of the kind of love that lays itself down for its enemies. Father, we thank you for this reminder from this text that you're inviting us but you're not begging us. My prayer today, Father, is that whether it's in this room or online, that there would be those of us who would take you up on that invitation and begin walking with you and begin experiencing the love that you have for us and the power of your spirit in us and the, the beautiful community that you make out of us. And I just pray that many more would hear us lifting the name of Jesus up so that they might be drawn to him. And we ask that you would uh, give us a week where we get to reflect your glory to the world and come back next week and worship together once again. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to close our sort of public service, and so those of you online, we're going to let you go, and then those of us in the room and invite you back in just a minute or two, uh, we're going to participate in communion together, the Lord's Supper. And um, we would love for you to do that. I want to remind you, Cornhole is back, if you didn't hear that announcement, the 14th, so two Mondays from now, not tomorrow, but the next Monday. And uh, we'll be out there playing cornhole and having a good time. Uh, we do need people to keep score. Um, we need people to be backups. So if you don't want to commit to playing every week, uh, you, can be a, you can just kind of commit to being a backup, and we'll uh, put you on kind of somebody cancels, then you'll fill in their spot. But uh, you can find the information for that on our events page. Uh, we'll put it on our Facebook page. And other than that, you can come talk to me or you can talk to Julia, uh, and we will get you hooked up with that. Let me just speak this blessing from the book of Numbers over us as we kind of conclude our public service and say goodbye to those of you watching online and then we'll be back in just a couple minutes to take communion. This is from Numbers chapter six. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Amen.